We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Enrique Lin Shao, a postdoctoral fellow at the Doudna Lab at UC Berkeley, developing novel methods for CRISPR gene editing. He is a key member of the Innovative Genomic Institute's Volunteer Clinical Diagnostics Team, who's been helping validate its COVID-19 testing lab process over the past few months. He is also the co-founder of the podcast Caminos and Ciencia, providing up-to-date scientific information about the coronavirus in Spanish to the Latin American community. Dr. Lin Xiao received his undergraduate degree in engineering physics from the Technical University of Munich in Germany, studied chemical and structural biology at the University of Cambridge in England, received a master's degree in biophysics in Germany, and his PhD in molecular biophysics and biochemistry from the University of Pennsylvania. Enrique, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. You work with the Innovative Genomics Institute at UC Berkeley, which is directed by CRISPR pioneer Dr. Jennifer Dudna. Can you tell us about the Innovative Genomics Institute and the work being done there? Sure. The IGI is a collaboration between researchers at UC Berkeley and UCSF, and we're conducting cutting-edge research in genome engineering from very basic science, like identifying new gene editing tools to applications of genome engineering to produce better crops, for example, and also for novel medical treatments. It really combines both research and also a broader community. Uh, where we're discussing, for example, bioethics and policy surrounding CRISPR technologies. And one really important and interesting point is that that's often not discussed, is that we really emphasize the importance of equity and access in the technologies that we're developing now, and for example, with uh, COVID as well. That's great. And I actually have a question around equity that I'll be asking you in in just a little bit. So we're going to give a little preface to that. Enrique, you also work on improving CRISPR-mediated genome editing technology, which is considered one of the most significant discoveries in the history of biology. Can you explain this science to our audience? Yes. So CRISPR was uh, first identified as a system through which bacteria and archaea can protect themselves from viral infections. And in a way, it acts like an immune system by detecting specific sequences of DNA from viruses that infect bacteria and chopping them down like molecular scissors, rendering the viruses ineffective. So really, the feature that is really crucial uh, for CRISPR, it's its ability to identify specific sequences and also cut DNA or RNA at a very specific site. The breakthrough really, really comes from understanding how this system works and adapting it to be able to do gene editing in different cells. And I think a good analogy that I like to think about is if we imagine the human genome with its 3 billion base pairs as a very, very long text in Word. Let's say we take a font like Times New Roman, uh, font size 12. We would need over 1 million pages to cover the entire human genome. Uh, And then CRISPR 
would really be like the cursor that allows us to go anywhere in those 1 million pages uh, and just click at a specific site and cut that site. So just thinking about the complexity of what CRISPR can do uh, in that example is really similar to what it's doing in a cell, which for me is amazing. And because now we can just cut so precisely, you could imagine that now you can put things in, you can switch things out and overall modify the genome. Outstanding. And that's a really nice analogy, talking about a, a Word document and the cursor. <laughs> so how can CRISPR be used in treating human diseases? So because of this precision that's afforded uh, by CRISPR, we can really use it to treat a lot of different human diseases. And it, it has already been used, for example, the first patient to receive gene editing uh, with CRISPR to treat sickle cell disease, Victoria Gray. Uh, she received a treatment, well, the first patient in the US. She received her treatment a year ago and now she's thriving. She doesn't have, uh, there haven't seen any complications. It seems like it's working really well. And CRISPR is now being explored to treat some types of cancer, bethothalassemia, muscle dystrophy, and some types of blindness. Uh, so there's really a lot of diseases that have a genetic component uh, where you can use CRISPR. But then beyond that, you can think about combining CRISPR with other new technologies like CAR-T therapy. And then you can start thinking about developing completely new medical treatments. Yes, my understanding, which is much more limited than yours about CRISPR, is that it really has applications in all kinds of both genetic diseases as well as um, infectious diseases and, and otherwise. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. There's really, I think no limits as to what you can do with CRISPR. Right. I understand that the Innovative Genomics Institute, which as you mentioned earlier, is also known as the IGI, pivoted its lab in just 14 days to be able to test for COVID-19 and expand testing capacity. Can you tell us about the thinking behind this as well as the process of completely repurposing a lab? I think around March 13th, uh, Jennifer Doudna um, the director of the IGI, my boss, <laughs> she held a virtual meeting to discuss how we as researchers and scientists could use our training and resources to respond to this pandemic. Uh, and while we were floating a lot of many different ideas, everyone kept circling back to the fact that the U.S. really was lagging behind on testing at the moment. And that's really a key to curbing the transmission. And we've seen it in countries like South Korea, Taiwan, um, and other places where uh, testing has really been crucial to curbing the transmission. So around the same time, the shelter-in-place happened here uh, in the Bay Area. And I was at home obsessively reading the news about the pandemic. Uh, and then I saw a call for volunteers on Twitter from the IGI, where they were asking for volunteers who had experience with RNA extraction and qPCR experience. And these are two lab techniques that I use pretty much weekly in my work. So I just signed up. Uh, and then within a day or two, I got an email asking if I wanted to co-lead the technical testing together with a colleague, Jennifer Hamilton, as well as Connor Suchida and Abby Stahl. And then uh, we just came to the IGI and got to work. Um, I'd say the first week was really chaotic. It was a complete mess. We were moving equipment out of a sequencing room uh, and bringing equipment from different labs across the campus, just rolling it around. And a lot of what we were doing that first week was brainstorming ideas. Like we knew we, would, we were not going to be able to get nasal swaps because there was a shortage. There were no, no copan tubes. 
So a lot of what we, we really had this um, whatever it takes mentality because we knew that the goal was so important that we didn't mind working through weekends, long hours, thinking about other possibilities of what we could do. And we ended up uh, figuring out that there was a specific small tube that wasn't being uh, wasn't completely out that we bought. Uh, we got an OP swap and we just built a kit out of scratch pretty much. And I don't know, it was like awesome, really awesome two weeks since none of us had experience working with clinical samples. Uh, we learned so, so much. Our working model was rise and test. Every day we would meet at nine and discuss what our plans were for that day. So then, uh, yeah, we settled also on a kit from Thermo Fisher uh, and worked to validate the whole pipeline based on criteria based uh, set by the FDA, like how to detect the limit of detection, how many viral particles can we detect on a specific sample, how reproducible is our whole pipeline. So that was what we were working on for the first two weeks. Uh, we also had over 800 people sign up to volunteer and there was a, it, it was really an amazing interdisciplinary team of people, postdocs, PhDs, candidates, uh, clinical liaisons, policy, project managers, robotics, and really great leadership from Jennifer Doudna, Fyodor Urnoff, Dirk Hakamaya, and Ralph Green. And I would say I was just truly inspired by seeing so many people sign up to help and so many volunteers. And it was a great learning experience to learn how to train these people and how to set up this whole lab in only two weeks. Yeah, that sounds like a really amazing process and truly basically a startup environment, bringing people in from different areas, different departments, and just figuring out how to how to get this done and, and make it work. And it also shows the power of social media that a single tweet could have brought you into the project and you know probably got a lot of other people involved. And now that I hear you say Dr. Doudna's name out loud, I realize I was mispronouncing it earlier in the podcast. So she's your boss. So I'll apologize. <laughs> it's a common uh, mistake. Okay, good. So Enrique, how does CRISPR technology apply to COVID-19 testing? So I would say we're actually not using CRISPR in our COVID-19 testing facility. And I think one of the reasons is because we needed to get uh, we wanted to get this as fast as possible, so we just went for conventional TACMAN qPCR, where we have three fluorescent probes that fluoresce if viral RNA is found in a patient sample. Uh, so this is technology that has been around for decades now. Uh, but that being said, the FDA recently did approve an emergency use authorization for a diagnostic method called Sherlock from researchers at the Broad Institute, where they're using a specific type of CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas13, to detect SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. And then a startup from former members of the Doudna Lab, Mammoth Biosciences, announced the use of Cas12A, another type of CRISPR, um, and a, a diagnostics method called Detector for a similar setup. And then here at the IGI, we have also in parallel been working on developing novel methods uh, for COVID-19 testing using CRISPR. Wow, outstanding. As part of this initiative, I understand that your team created a blueprint detailing how other non-clinical labs could similarly establish their own pop-up COVID-19 testing labs. Can you tell us more about this? Sure. Uh, I've never really seen a manuscript come together so fast. It was pretty incredible. It only took a few days to, put, uh, to get that blueprint together. 
Uh, but we really knew from the beginning that we didn't just want to do this for ourselves, but uh, we're really hoping we could share our experience with other universities, both here and abroad, uh, so they could really fast uh, replicate what we did. And since we started, we've been contacted by multiple places like UT Austin, uh, or just yesterday by, by people at UPenn, where I did my PhD, to discuss how we developed the whole pipeline. And then I'm also from Costa Rica, and I was contacted by researchers at the University of Costa Rica to discuss our work here and possible ways they can implement some of the lessons we learned. The blueprint really takes uh, you step by step through the whole process from our kit to validation of the pipeline, our LINs, the laboratory information management system that we're using, uh, and then it covers regulation, funding, partnerships, and much more. So. It's a really great resource, I think, for people out there thinking about doing the same thing. It sounds like it, and it's really a tremendous spirit of collaboration and, and really public health in, in thinking about just putting that valuable information out there so that each university doesn't have to reinvent the wheel and um, can take what you've learned to help us manage and hopefully get ahead of this pandemic. So I applaud the work that's being done there. Uh, the IGI has implemented a fully automated robotic pipeline to allow them to conduct thousands of tests per day. Can you tell us about this robotic pipeline and how it works? Yeah, so this actually took a little bit longer than 14 days. But when we started, we started with a semi-manual approach just because we wanted to get started and we wanted to be able to start processing uh, patient samples. So in the beginning, before we had the fully automated uh, process, we were processing around 200 samples a day. And now that we have increased with automation, uh, our capacity has gone over 1,000 samples every day. And we're kind of doubling the efforts right now. So what we really work with is two specific machines, two robots. The first one is called a Hamilton Starlet. And it's, it's really cool. It arrays a specific volume of each sample into the plate with 96 wells. Uh, so these 96 samples can then be processed in parallel. And then the second machine, uh, it's a Hamilton Vantage, uh, and it does RNA extraction and prepares the plates for qPCR. So this is the process that we were doing manually before, and it took us anywhere from two to four hours to process 96 samples. And now this Hamilton Vantage can process 400 uh, samples in about the same time. So in two hours, it could process four times what a human can do. So when we started, we set everything up for oropharyngeal swaps, OP, but have since also developed a system to detect the coronavirus in saliva, which is less invasive uh, and could be done through self-collection, for example, without a health practitioner. And we currently have a study set up uh, called IGI FAST, where we're assessing whether saliva testing can be a way to do surveillance as well. So those are some of the newest things we've been doing. That's great. And I'm sure all of those people who are getting the, the really deep nasal oropharyngeal swabs that go so far back in the nose and the back <laughs> of their throat will be thankful if there's a more straightforward saliva test that becomes available. Earlier, you, you had mentioned equity, and I actually want to loop back to that and ask you a question about that. I understand that these thousands of tests are actually being provided free of charge for marginalized, underserved, and underrepresented groups, including the homeless, uh, those who are in low-income situations, and, and previously incarcerated individuals through a collaboration with Roots Community Center. Can you tell us about the impetus for this project and how the collaboration developed? Yeah, so I think... Uh 
the health disparities in our country have become even more apparent with this pandemic, where we've seen Black and Hispanic populations are way more likely to be diagnosed with coronavirus. And often these populations are more vulnerable and marginalized and do not have adequate uh, access to healthcare. So from the beginning of our initiative, we knew uh, we wanted to be able to serve the underserved. And we actively reached out to different groups to do this. We started with a collaboration with Lifelong uh, in the city of Berkeley, running free tests for essential personnel and homeless people in the East Bay area. And then as we have progressed, uh, different centers like Roots have actually approached us uh, themselves asking for help since there is clearly still a lack of testing and funding for testing. And then some private labs uh, are providing testing, but it's at prohibitive costs, like $200 per sample. The turnaround times are often over a week. So we provide free testing to these places with current turnaround times of 24 to 48 hours. Uh, Roots specifically serves marginalized communities, as you uh, mentioned, recently incarcerated, marginally housed, low-income and predominantly African-American populations, which is a group that is uh, really seeing disproportionate impact, not only on health outcomes, but also because of existing inequities. So uh, even in a recent interview with Roots, they mentioned that the positivity rate for their walk-up site in Oakland is about 14.4%, which is really high, and that really truly reflects the need to provide free testing uh, for these populations. Absolutely. And if you think about that in terms of one out of every six people walking through their doors is positive, you know, that, that's a real public health issue and important to identify who, who's got COVID-19 infection. I understand you're also providing free tests for first responders, including the Berkeley Fire Department, and for essential workers at publicly owned utilities that serve the water needs of 90% of California residents and the power needs of 25%. And I understand that many are located in regions without access to health centers and testing. How did these relationships develop and how are the tests being provided in these remote regions? Yeah, so many of these collaborations arose actually from this group's contact, contacting us directly, uh, asking for help either because they read about what we were doing or they were referred by someone. I was really surprised that many of these groups uh, that are performing such important roles had nowhere else to go. We have a collaboration with Lifelong, as I mentioned, for some of these groups, and we have volunteers delivering kits themselves to some of these sites. And in some cases where it's further away, we can send the kits by mail as well, since they are stable at room temperature and stable for over several weeks. So thinking specifically about essential workers, like those maintaining the power grid, one of the things we really consider was that if the crew goes down, uh, and that causes problems with maintaining the grid, that could ex uh, have like really extremely devastating consequences for hospitals and all kinds of critical infrastructure systems. And so providing surveillance for them really allows them to maintain services that are really important for saving lives. So from the beginning, um, even if it wasn't directly apparent why we were going to do this, if once we thought a little bit about it, it was clear that this was really, really crucial and in line with our guidelines as well. Yes, and I think the fact that these organizations are reaching out to you the way they are really highlights some of the gaps that exist in our healthcare system and our public health infrastructure. And I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, as other groups perhaps listen to this podcast, they'll be aware of the great work that you're doing and hopefully be able to help fill in some of those gaps and, and 
your group really deserves a lot of credit for for making these tests available and, and trying to help preserve the public health in the way that you're doing. I understand that Dr. Doudna and the IGI are developing CRISPR-based diagnostics to more rapidly and cheaply detect the virus at key sites like airport boarding gates and at schools. Can you tell us a, a bit more about this? I think there's two sides to this. The first one is the one I mentioned where we've been developing saliva uh, as a way to test. And this would make it way easier for people to collect samples and do surveillance. And we're aiming to be one of the first places that has a clinically validated saliva uh, test. There's other places that have already set it up, like Rutgers, for example. So we've been working really hard on this. But then from the CRISPR-based side, as I mentioned, there's Sherlock and Detector. These are two technologies that, uh, while they're really, really awesome and pretty cool, they do rely on pre-amplification before you can do the CRISPR-based detection. So one of the projects that the Doudna lab is working on, together with the Savage lab and other labs uh, in the IGI, is to simplify the diagnostics by detecting the viral RNA using CRISPR-Cas13 and without using pre-amplification. And if we are successful, the diagnostic would be cheap, sensitive and really rapid, allowing for point-of-care applications. And as you mentioned, then we would be able to test at key sites like airports and places where you really need uh, uh, an answer really fast. Yeah. So when you say really rapid and and point-of-care testing sites, I'm not going to hold you to any particular number, but what what type of turnaround (laughs) time are are you looking at in terms of getting a result? So I would say hopefully uh, less than an hour, but uh, I don't have the details for this yet, but stay tuned. I think uh, they'll be putting out some information soon. Yeah, that would be absolutely um, ground shaking to get a test result down to an hour when right now I think some of the best labs are really looking at 24 hours and, and in some cases mm-hmm. it can be seven days or more to get a result back. So you're talking about you know, many multiples shorter than that, which is uh, pretty incredible. Yeah. So we're really excited about it. (laughs) Yes, you absolutely should be. Enrique, uh, I want to thank you on behalf of the podcast and on behalf of our audience for joining us to tell us about some of this really um, exciting technology that has a real chance to um, change the way we approach COVID testing and, and also for telling us about some of the Um, socially minded approach in the way your group is um, looking at this and and providing testing for those who are uh, have less access than many in our society and, and for areas that have less um, access to such testing. So thank you for the work you're doing. And and thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me here today, Ted. And thanks for informing the public about the pandemic and dispelling a little bit of the disinformation out there. Absolutely. That's what I'm working to do, Enrique. I wish you a a great day and thank you again uh, for your time. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.